Good morning, good morning, good morning. Everybody doing okay this morning? Love it. My name is Neil Payne. Uh, I'm obviously not Ben McGraw. Um, I'm a deacon here at Cross Point Fellowship. Um, and we're just going to start the morning off with prayer, just like we would every other morning. So you want to hit that first slide, Ethan? Beautiful. Today we're going to pray for a local church, uh, family fellowship, lead pastor, Paul Blue, and his wife, Lynn, and their three lovely young children, Ray, Brooke, and Parker. I've never met Ray, Brooke, Brooke and Parker, but I'm sure they're lovely. And then next, we're going to pray for the unreached people group, the Bedouins in Algeria. 1.77 million people, 0.00% unreached, 0.00% Christians. Crazy, crazy. Main religion is Islam, so if, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for just being beautiful, God. Thank you for uh, allowing us to come and gather in this room, Father, uh, for giving us a free nation that we can uh, gather together and enjoy you and enjoy each other uh, despite a global pandemic, Father. Thank you so much for family fellowship, God. We pray for uh, Pastor Paul and his wife, Lynn, that their marriage reflect you, God, that they enjoy you inside their marriage as well as inside their family, God. We pray that Family Fellowship is their meeting this morning, that they're also enjoying you corporately, that they're loving you, God, even uh, especially in this Advent season, God. Next, we just pray for uh, the Bedouins of Algeria, Father. God, we ask that you just raise up people to go to Algeria, God, that, um, that you teach us here at Crosspoint Fellowship um, what that looks like to support the Algerian folks, God. Um, whether that be raising up people of our own to go to Algeria, Father, or whether that be praying for these people uh, regularly, God, or uh, giving to these people, uh, giving to the missionaries that go there via the Lottie Moon, God. We just ask that you, uh, that you teach us what to do with those in Algeria, God, that you burden our hearts for them. Father, their, their main religion, Islam, is all about uh, a justice system that if you do good enough, you might make it. Um, God, help them to learn grace, Father. Help them to see that you're the answer to that, Father, that there's no way they could do it, Father. There's no justice system available uh, that could get them there, but only you can, Father. And lastly, I just pray for me, God. Um, I pray for our people, Father. I pray for Crosspoint Fellowship here in this room, um, and I pray for uh, those uh, watching us online, Father, that, uh, that you just show us what you have in your word, God. Um, that you reveal yourself to us in this time. God, we love you. We love you. We love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Beautiful. So anybody that knows me knows that I live and die by the stopwatch, so I just started my clock. I know some of you guys will think that's funny. Most of you will not care at all, but for the three people over there, they love it. Um, so this morning, we're going to go take a step back in history, God. We're, we're going to actually... Look at a people who lived and breathed and actually walked this earth. So you want to put that first slide up there? A little bit of recap in what, uh, what Ben had talked about. Um, we are going back in time, so this is going to be kind of interesting. Uh, so my, my first and only joke of the morning is we should hop in our DeLorean, hit 88 miles per hour, activate the flux capacitor, hit 1.21 gigawatts, and take a ride. And so that's my one and only joke. I'll get that out of the way. So we have creation, dotted line, Abraham, 2000, Exodus, 1500, David, 1000 BC. Those are just nice, tidy 
um, moments in time to kind of give us a little bit of history. And then we crawl into the real story in 722, Israel, we've got the Assyrian army, uh, who's Israel being the northern kingdom, the Assyrian army is kind of coming down on Israel. They're breathing on their necks. You want to hit that next slide? That's where Micah comes in the scene. Micah being 742 to 686 BC. Uh, this is very important because Micah was a real person. We have this opportunity or this, I guess, this uh, knack as humans to disassociate the Bible characters from real life people and that's just not true. The Bible characters are not fiction. They're real. Micah lived 742 to 686. He had a front row seat to the Assyrian army coming to Israel. He knew exactly what was going on. You want to hit that next slide? When we study the Bible, it's oftentimes like very, very important that we look at what's going on in the culture outside of everything that's written in the Bible. For me, it just kind of brings it to real life. So we've got the first recorded Olympic Games in 776 BC. That is like 34 years before Micah was born. The first recorded Olympic Games was right when Micah was basically being born. Now the Olympics was important for several reasons, but one of the main reasons it was important is because we all love a good competition. We all love, I'm actually wearing uh, Kansas City socks today because I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan, Patrick Mahomes, Reckham Tech, the whole deal, you get that. But we love a good competition. And what's the idea of a good competition is to see who is the biggest, baddest warrior among us all, right? It's to compete, to basically train for battle. And the Olympics was extremely important. They even had this time in the Olympics where they called it the Olympic truce. For three months before the Olympics, there was a complete truce, a peace treaty. Truce literally means lay down your arms. So no matter what battle was happening at the time of the Olympic Games, for three months, the warriors would lay down their arms and walk to Olympia, which is where the Olympic Games were held, compete in the Olympics, and then for a month after that, they would walk back, and there was no fighting during the Olympic Games. That's how important the Olympics were to the people of the ancient world. As a matter of fact, um, I took this class in college um, called Sports and Public Spectacles of the Ancient World. Uh, by far my favorite class of all time. Had nothing to do with my major, so there's that. But um, these ancient historians that lived at this time frame actually measured time by a thing called the Olympiad, which is four years. Every four years they had the Olympics, and so an ancient historian might say, okay, this battle occurred in this Olympiad. This battle was between this Olympics and this Olympics. This major thing in history happened between this Olympics and that Olympics. That's how important a contest was for the ancient people. Um, and again, the Olympics, the whole purpose of it was to crown the biggest and baddest warrior of all time. Let's go to the next slide. Something else that happened, and you can see the little dots. I don't know if you can see that, but I can see it because I'm right next to it. But there's little dots on the time frame or the timeline. And so Micah, 742 BC, 11 years before Micah is the traditional date that Rome was founded. Now, obviously, that's just kind of a date that we associated with it. But about then is when Rome was founded. And I don't think I need to go into too much detail about Rome I mean, it's a pretty interesting story. If you have time, go study the founding of Rome. You got Romulus and Aremus, and there's wolves and some criminals, and it's a great time. But nonetheless, I just found that an interesting fact, so I included it. 
Now, here's the craziest fact that I thought was pretty cool. Next slide. Homer. Does anybody know who Homer is? Shakes, yes, no. You probably read Homer in, uh, in your educational career. Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. So right here in Micah's time period, we, we call the Homeric period. So Homer was a Greek poet who wrote about the Battle of, of Troy, the Trojan War. He wrote about these great warriors, these awesome bad-to-the-bone, bad mamma-jamma people. The writings of this era, all the way up really until basically our modern era, writings kind of followed the same theme of epics. They were called epics because they were epic. I mean, you had this like warrior who was this battle-hardened guy who trained flawlessly, trained every single day, went to war, and absolutely uh, crushed it, right? He had this big um, army that he might lead into battle. He conquered people left and right. Uh, he was praised as an absolute hero. And Homer and a lot of his associates, uh, they actually wrote these little bitty weaknesses in their writings just to tell you that, hey, these guys are kind of human. You know, you had Achilles with his heel. Uh, you had Heracles or Hercules, same, same person, uh, who got betrayed, right? He, uh, there's always some dirty, rotten scoundrel who kind of, you know, betrays you, and his was a, was a lover that was a little bit star-crossed. But you always have this amazing um, human being, this amazing hero uh, that fights with his own brawn and under his own merit, uh, that whole Invictus thing like, uh, you know, I'm the master of my own fate type of deal. That was the culture that Micah was ingrained in. You know, if you read in your Bible, about every page that you look at, it often is some battle or some contest. And if you don't read it on that page, if you flip the page, it's probably on the next page. So Micah and the people in Israel and Judah were ingrained in it. As a matter of fact, Assyria is beating down their door right now as we're reading through Micah chapter 3. It is visceral to them that people are on their way. So we've got this hero culture and I think I would love a hero culture type of deal myself if I have the Assyrian army coming down. I've got the Babylonians, I've got the Ottomans, I've got the Persians, I've got a fight to stay alive. I think I would want a warlord absolute. And that's kind of what we see in Israel, right? We see that Israel and Judah want a Messiah who is a warlord. They want somebody that's going to come by and take care of all the dirty, rotten scoundrels that have enslaved them for, at this point, 2,000 years. At this point, for 2,000 years, they've been essentially slaves and moved around here and there. And so that's what the people wanted, a great warlord. But, but, what kind, of, what kind of warrior, what kind of hero did the people actually need? And that's what we're going to look at in Micah today. So there's no frills or fuss to this sermon. There's no like big eschatological theoretical breakthroughs or anything like that. We're just going to read the word and expose it. So, with that being said, let's all stand up, turn to Micah 3.12. You've already heard part of it, but we'll read it again, just because.
Micah 3.12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. You can have a seat. Happy Advent season, right? We've got judgment. You know, I, think, uh, I think it's comical. I think Ben's probably laughing right now to give the new guy the sermon on judgment, but I'm okay with that. So here's what the morning's going to look like. First of all, we're going to take a little snapshot of what Micah 3 looks like, and we're going to talk about Micah 3, 1 through 12 is going to be our text today. I'm just going to give you a broad overall pattern of what Micah looks like. Then we're going to climb in and we're going to expose Micah 3, 1 through 12, a little bit verse by verse. And then lastly, we're going to zoom out and see the big picture of what's going on in Israel um, and what is to come, so you can kind of see where we're going this morning. So let's go ahead and, and jump in. Micah 3. As we dig in, I want you to kind of see this pattern here that emerges. We've got this pattern of judgment and deliverance. Judgment, deliverance. Judgment, deliverance. That's not only in Micah 3, that's in the entire book of Micah, and it's obviously for practical purposes, the gospel, right? You have judgment and deliverance. Micah 3 is specifically painting a picture of a courtroom where we have this idea that Micah is bringing God's lawsuit against Israel to the people of Israel. So Micah is bringing God's lawsuit to the people of Israel against Israel. In verses 1 through 4, we see the abuse of power from the leadership of Israel and Judah. In verses 5 through 8, we see the misuse of the prophetic office. Verses 9 through 11, we see a general indictment of the leadership of Judah and Israel. In verses 12, we see the sentence and the judgment. So let's go ahead and start exposing this. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 of Micah 3. It says this, And I said, Hear you, heads of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Ooh. Uh, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So it obviously doesn't sound good for the leaders of Israel, right? Verses 2 through 3, you'll notice the cannibalistic language that we have going on here. We have tear, eat, flay, break, chop. This is the imagery of a leadership that is oppressing their people. They are literally eating their own. You see, these men, these leaders, these priests, these judges, these kings, historically had the authority to settle disputes and make decisions on very important matters. They had the particular responsibility to protect the weak and the innocent in their communities. Obviously, they're failing pretty hard, right? So if you study the provisional law in Exodus 21, chapter 21 through chapter 23, you would see that for every contingency, for every emergency, for every activity, for anything that could ever pop up, there was a specific way to handle that, a very clear picture of what you're supposed to do, and it always painted this picture of a just and compassionate society, no matter the socioeconomic status. You see, the, the question that I guess we have to ask ourselves is, is there an earthly king that could uphold that law of provision? 
Again, you can see exactly where I'm going for this, but just keep that in mind. Is there an earthly king that could uphold this law of provision? There were also occasions where these kings, these judges, these uh, supreme leaders would have to become supreme judges. We see uh, the, the example of Solomon, right? Uh, in 1 Kings 3, you see uh, Solomon pass judgment on which woman actually belong, is the birth mother of the child. Remember Solomon, like, well, just hack this kid in half, give this half to this mom and this half to this mom, and it'll all be good. Full well knowing that the real mother would step forward and not let that happen. In 1 Kings 3, 28, it says that Solomon passed such judgment with such wisdom that all Israel stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. You see, the proper Old Testament leader was to point his people to Christ via their judgments. Kings, priests, and judges, God had seen it to that as a whole, they were competent. As a whole party, they had competence to know what they should do in every single situation to be a just judge. But verses 1 through 4 tell us that they are failing miserably. See, verses 2 through 3 specific says that the judge's bench had become a butcher's block, seeing ordinary people as commodities for sale and treating them as a butcher treats a slaughtered animal, slicing and dicing them up, household, land, and people. You see, this isn't an isolated event. This isn't isolated. You see, King David, remember he looked on Bathsheba and he longed for her, right? So he chopped and sliced and diced Uriah and that family just to get what he wanted. There are corrupt leaders in Israel at this time. This is not isolated. And then we have verse 4. Just like the corrupt leader won't hear the voice of, they, of those who they oppress, obviously God won't hear the voice of the corrupt leader. Now, silence and solitude is terrifying in the best circumstance, right? Whenever, think about our criminal system. When we go to jail, uh, the, worst, the worst judgment you could ever get is to go to solitary confinement. That, in the best of times, is terrifying. In the worst of times, when you have the Assyrian army breathing down your neck and God gives you total depravity, that's scary. That is a very, very heavy judgment. Not only that, these leaders knew the commandments of God. They knew the commandments of God. They knew the difference in justice and injustice. As a matter of fact, they decided to go the opposite direction of justice. They said they made their, deed, their deeds evil. So the next set of verses, verses 5 through 8, it might get better. We'll see. That was a joke. It doesn't get better. Verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall, it shall be night to you without vision the, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced. The diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sins. So here we have the misuse of the prophetic office. See, when justice is missing from the leadership of Israel, when justice is missing from the courtroom, as a godly nation, you should expect your spiritual leaders to step up and say something. But here, that's not what we see. We see the prophets in verse 5 claiming that all is good in the world as long as they get money, which means if they don't get money, it's doom and gloom. 
If you give me money, you'll have a great life. If you give me pocket lint, sorry about your bad luck. That's exactly what we see going on here. Again, this is not an isolated event. Whenever I read this, I had the thought of a guy who, uh, who to present day, stands up in front of hundreds of thousands of people and preaches a health and wealth message, has a great mullet. This is not a weird message. This is timely, I would say. You see, these men, if I could put it into one sentence that's like a catchphrase that I've been using all week, is these men are profiteering instead of prophesying. They're profiteering instead of prophesying. Just like the Lord won't hear from a corrupt leader, he's not going to let a corrupt prophet see. You see, the, the purpose of a true prophet back in the day was to stand up in the counsel of the Lord and the Lord speak directly to them. But that was a breakdown of what's happening right here. You know, Ben has the, uh, the analogy of, a, of like a giraffe standing up in the counsel of the Lord above the clouds and, and, and getting a firsthand account of what God sees and wants. That was the idea of a prophet, and that is failing miserably. However, we have verse 8, and I think Micah is awesome. He's one of my heroes now after studying this. Micah distinguishes himself from other prophets as well as the popular message of the time by saying he is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is uh, pretty similar to what we've kind of been studying in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's pretty cool because you see this idea of Micah not only showing it inwardly, but showing it outwardly and outwardly versus inwardly. Um, whenever I read this, I thought, man, this is an absolute shadow of what's going to be preached 700 years standing on a Sermon on the Mount. It's to preach a message that's completely against everything that culture has to offer. And I thought that was pretty cool. Verses 9 through 11 Let's go ahead and read those. And again, who knows? Maybe it'll get better. Verse 9. Hear this, you heads of Israel, the house of ja or hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come of us. This little segment cracks me up. Here you have a general indictment of all the leadership to include kings, priests, judges, prophets. They basically tie everything together in verses 9 through 11 and say, hey, you guys aren't doing so well. You see, the leadership of Israel and Judah couldn't even see the difference between worship and their own wickedness. Verse 1 tells us that they ought to know what justice is, and verse 11 tells us that they hate justice. Seems that not much has changed in politics in the last 2,700 years, huh? Same story, different day. So in verse 11 specifically, I want to call to the attention that it's not the Lord, or uh, that says, is, it, is not the Lord in the midst of us? See, this refers to the temple in Jerusalem. You have Micah, who's within eyeshot of the temple, and Jerusalem's identity, and as a matter of fact, the nation of Israel and Judah's identity is so wrapped up in the temple that they're even called, they even call Jerusalem Mount Zion. And they say here, the Lord is right there. The Lord is with us. He would never, ever, ever do anything bad because out of all the people in the world, he gave us the temple. It seems like they have this idea that he's like, a lovely blonde-haired, blue-eyed that frolics in fields of flowers and is super lovey-dovey. But despite what Judah and Israel are saying here, the leaders are saying, um, God is not our 365-day-a-year Santa Claus. And that's the idea that they're pointing to. 
Lastly, verse 12. We've heard it twice this morning, but let's listen to it again. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. A mountain of the house a wooded height. That refers to the temple, saying, without the Lord, the temple is worth nothing but a tall wooden structure, completely void of God. Here in verse 12, we see the decreation of Zion. We see a decreation. We see the, the temple in Jerusalem going to ruins. If you want, you can turn to 1 Kings 6, 12 through 13. I'll read it out loud, but if you're, uh, if you're a sword driller, check it out. When Solomon built the house of the Lord, the conditions were very clear. It says this, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my ordinances and keep all my commands and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I take to David, your father, or which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people. See, these were the conditions of the temple being built. This is God coming to Solomon saying, here are my conditions. And then if you flip to a couple of chapters later to 1 Kings 9, in verse 2, and then I'll skip to verse 6 through 8, when Solomon finished building the temple, the Lord appeared to him and spoke these words. If you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commands and my statutes which I have set before you, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And the house which I have consecrated for, for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And this house will become a heap of ruins. You see, verse 12 of Micah talks about the unthinkable. Micah does something that no one in Israel would ever think of doing, and Micah actually takes it to action. Not only does he think that the temple is going to be ruined, but he directly indicts the leadership of Israel saying, you're the reason why the temple is going to fall because of you. You see, Jerusalem in this day is about to become a heap of ruins. It's about to become sheer rubble, and it's all the leadership's fault. Cities and nations may look secure and actually be extremely prosperous. Remember, this is a time when Israel is actually prosperous. I mean, despite the fact that they have the Syrian army coming towards them. But other than that, life is great. But God's key word here is justice, not prosperity or piety. It seems like we have a whole chapter full of judgment, doom, and gloom. Again, happy Advent, right? So I'm going to kind of summarize what Micah 3 is saying once again. Verses 1 through 4, we have the abuse of power and the leadership. Verses 5 through 8, we see the misuse of the prophetic office. Verse 9 through 11, we see a general indictment of the leadership of Judah and Israel. Verse 12, we see a sentence. We see a judgment. You see, it was the responsibility of the leadership at the time to point their people to God to allow their people to worship God, to actually funnel them towards worship. And verses 1 through 11 show how terrible, terrible they were doing. As a matter of fact, they were oppressing their people. There was this sense of oppression from within, hence the cannibalistic nature. So uh, I want to be very clear here. It's so easy to see Israel and to see these bad people just like it is to see Adam or something and, and take ourselves out of the picture.
But that's not the case here, right? Israel is just a picture of the human condition. If I was making a golden calf, it would be the biggest, best, brightest, and shiniest one of them all. I promise you. We're all in the same boat here. It's a human condition. It's not just Israel. We all failed from day one. You see, Israel was set up with the best of the best. Israel was God's chosen people. They were a royal priesthood, a nation set apart. According to Genesis, all people, all nations would be blessed through Abraham, who is to say Israel. They had every single thing that they needed for success, and they obviously failed. A couple of things they had. They made, or God made their enemies as nothing. He gave them countless victories, and odds of winning were virtually zero. He gave them Sabbath. He gave them rest. He gave them judges and kings to guide them. He gave them prophets to speak to them. He gave them a direct line via the priests for intercession. He gave them an inheritance uh, that was land that no one could take from them via the law. No one could steal their land from them, and he gave them that land. He gave them a way to be redeemed just by slicing and dicing an animal. He gave them the temple. He literally gave them the house of meeting. And here in chapter 3, we see that that is nothing but rubble now. You see, God gave them all that they could to basically uh, be redeemed, but everything that they used that God gave them, they completely prostituted themselves out for money, comfort, accolades, and for safety. Remember, Tiglath-Pileser is an Assyrian uh, he's the Assyrian overlord that's coming to destroy them right as Micah's writing this. Let that be very, very visceral. Micah 3 says, judgment is, a, is in order, and the leadership is to blame for that. So, um, Micah 3, obviously the leaders were terrible. They had a few simple instructions. All they had to do was follow these few rules, and these weren't like Ikea instructions. There was like, a clear-cut way to do it. There wasn't extra parts or unnecessary steps at all. You don't have anything left over. It was very clear what they were supposed to do, and obviously it failed. Now, you know, you've heard, you've heard this before, but if it was left there, it would be a terrible, terrible time to celebrate. Uh, Christmas would be awful, but alas, it is not. God does what he does, and he, sand- he, all- he never leaves judgment with just judgment. There's always a hope message to it. And as a matter of fact, if you look in Micah 3, and then you look in Micah 2, and you look in Micah 4, and those that are challenged with math, Micah 2 is right before Micah 3, and Micah 4 is right after Micah 3. If you look in Micah 2, 12 through 13, which is the last two verses of Micah 2, you'll see, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in the fold. Like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You see what Micah 2, 12 through 13 is talking about is a shepherd king. A shepherd king. If you read Micah 4, 1 through 5, you'll see, It shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many people, 
and shall decide for strong nations away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift a sword against other nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. There won't be any more war. But they shall sit every man under the vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all his people walk, each in, his own, in the name of his own God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen. So he doesn't leave this judgment idea alone. He sandwiches it with hope right before judgment and right after judgment. These verses, specifically Micah 4, 1 through 5, remind me of Revelation 7, 9 and 10. You can turn there again if you want. I'll read it out loud. Again, Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits out, or who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. See, you know the story, we all know the story, we've heard it a billion times, but we see Christ bringing us back to the days of the garden, right? We, we get to sit under our own vine, under our own fig tree. So what type of he hero does Micah tell us we need? He tells us we need a hero that is in stark contrast to the one described in, in chapter 3 of Micah. You see, these leaders in Micah 3 were supposed to stand in the counsel of the Lord. Jesus was the counsel of the Lord. These leaders were supposed to judge righteously. Jesus became our impartial judge. These leaders broke the law and sinned against their people. Jesus fulfilled the law and became our sin. These leaders sliced and diced their people. Jesus was sliced and diced for us. These leaders destroyed the temple. Jesus rebuilt the temple in three days. These leaders were expensive and Jesus is absolutely free, but it ain't cheap. These leaders gave their people nothing, and Jesus gave us everything. You see, the Father gave us the warrior that we needed, not the one that we hopelessly wanted. It's a complete stark contrast to Micah 3. It's also in stark contrast to the culture of the time, this warrior culture that wanted their enemies eradicated completely. God sent us a man born in a manger grew up as a carpenter who died on a cross, the worst possible death that we could ever do. And it didn't stop there. He rose three days later. He gave us his righteousness. And that's not the warrior that we might have wanted, but that's the warrior that we needed. That's the hero that we absolutely needed. We look back on the Messiah that came. Specifically, that's what Advent's for. That's why we light these candles, to look back on the Messiah that came and to look forward to the Messiah that is going, going to come again. So if you want to, turn to Romans 8, 1 through 4. Last thing I got for you. It's a common verse, but it hits me hard every single time. Romans 8. 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in us. Uh, excuse me, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to flesh but according to the spirit. Let's pray. Father God, just thank you so much for being beautiful, God. Thank you so much that you were not the leadership of Micah, God. Thank you so much that you came to fulfill the law, not to break the law, God. Thank you so much that you gave yourself for us. God, we, we love you. We love you. We love you. God, thank you so much that you're not these earthly leaders that will let us down 10 times out of 10, Father, but that you're here for us always. God, thank you for the Advent season. Thank you that we can stop down our busy lives and remember how you came into this world, God. Not as a towering warlord that's going to wipe out empire after empire. Oh, that's coming. But not first, God. You came as a humble child. Thank you so much for your 33 years of ministry on this earth, God. And I pray that we're reminded of that every single day this Advent season. God, we love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. It's in your holy, heavenly name we pray. Amen. Man, that was a good word, Neil. Thank you for that. That was strong. I think uh, as we take the supper together, we can enjoy that we, not only are we not being eaten, not only are we not being sliced and diced, um, our judge is actually providing for us. Uh, This beautiful picture in Micah chapter 4 is a fitting place for us as we're about to eat. Instead of being eaten, we eat each week. Uh, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a gathering of saints, Jews and Gentiles. (laughs) Man, former enemies made not only friends, but brothers and sisters. What an unbelievable judge we have, what he's accomplished for us. And then here we sit, every man under our tree. Under our vine, under our fig tree, no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. We have a chance every single week to enjoy sitting underneath our tree and enjoying some figs together and the vine. So let's take, and let me give me a second to, um, I can't do this with one hand, open my little guy here. Let's take and eat and enjoy our judge. the best of judges. Let's take a drink in faith. Let's pray. Lord, in some um, really honest way, we were thankful for the, the stark and vivid and graphic picture of bad news. We are thankful for this honest and and, uh, um, ugly picture of how difficult and terrible your judgment actually is. 
Lord, we're thankful for this front row seat to the failings of Israel, the failings of their kings and their judges and their priests and their prophets. And we see in those failings our own. And Lord, in all that terrible back, uh, backdrop, that dark, terrible bad news, Lord, we together enjoy the good news of a great king, great judge, a great Savior and great Lord, Jesus Christ. We enjoy him this morning. We enjoy him especially this season. And now, Lord, we enjoy him in song. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Y'all stand. Let's sing.